From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today, students from about 150 countries are skipping class with the goal of schooling government and business leaders the world over. The coordinated youth climate strike is predicted to be the largest environmental action in history, scheduled just a couple days before a U.N. climate action summit in New York City on Monday. In Georgia, a group called Zero Hour Georgia is pulling together a strike and demonstration at the state capitol this afternoon at 2. Its co-executive directors are GSU student Zina Abdul-Karim. Hello. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. And Andrea Manning, hello there. Hi, I'm so excited. Thank you for being here on such a busy day for you. Also with us, climate Georgia Tech climate scientist Kim Cobb back in the studio. Great to have you back with us. Thanks for having me. So Andrea, I'm going to ask you first, the main organizer of this worldwide strike is 16-year-old Greta Thunberg from Sweden. My observation is many high school students need reminders to turn their homework in on time. So this is must be a huge effort to draw students from across the state. How are you doing it? Um, that's a good question. I think a big part of it is having a good team behind us. Um, so we're able to like, mm-hmm. yeah, text each other and be like, hey, like somebody get on this. Somebody responds to this email. Um, and then on top of that, just, I don't know, I guess just finding different ways that we can um, do schoolwork and do organizing at the same time, whether that is like being on a phone call and maybe trying to do a reading. Um, but one thing I do want to just like bring attention to um, is yeah. just the fact that like Greta is great. We love her. But a lot of the organizing behind so many of these movements from not just this month or this year, but just decades like from the start of everything has been from black, brown and indigenous um, communities. And we just want to give rise to that because we feel like that's not discussed enough. Well, I'd love to get to that, but just a little bit more about the goals here. Mm -hmm. Besides that, Zena, the timing of the strike is very strategic. On Monday, world leaders will gather in New York City for the UN Climate Change Summit. So climate change, huge and complex issue. So what's the main message that you want to send? Um, The main message we are sending is that action to take against this climate crisis is long overdue and that our world leaders need to take this action um, immediately for the safety of future younger generations. Well, Kim, that's one of the messages of the organizers across the globe. But on the the website for the U.S. organizers, it says decades of inaction has left us with just 11 years to change Mm -hmm. the trajectory of the worst effects of climate change and cite a 2018 report from the U.N. Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC. 11 years, really? Until what? (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's important to remember that this action should have been taken decades ago, could have been taken decades ago, and that every year that we delay the serious action and urgent action that we need to begin moving towards climate stability is an opportunity squandered and damages that will be higher. And, you know, these these amazing women are right. It's going to land on the frontline communities, uh, the communities of color, low-income communities, first and worst. And so I'm, I'm amazed and inspired to see the youth rising today for climate action. Well, Zena, one of the purposes, as Andrea mentioned, is to focus on environmental justice. This is a term that's become really in the forefront in the last couple of years, specifically the intersection of climate change and race. Can you illuminate that a little bit more for us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's pretty simple. Uh, Because minority communities and people of color are the most socially underrepresented as well as socioeconomically underprivileged group of people in America, When the climate crisis reaches its climax, there will be no justice for these minority communities. Mm. Essentially, we are the first to go. 
Um, it always comes back to money. Money buys time and safety. And oftentimes these minority communities cannot afford the prices of their own security. Mm-hmm. So, Kim, you say that this is not just about race, but also ethnicity. What do climate change and immigration ethnicity have to do with each other? Yeah, so it's true. All, all that Zena said, I would echo strongly back. That's what the science tells us again and again, that the most vulnerable among us are going to be the most uh, damaged by climate change impacts and, and displaced, um, paying sometimes with their lives. And so this is not just happening in the United States. It's happening all over the world. And to see that you know, we're calling into the room this um, this inequity, this profound inequity, it's today is a moral call, if nothing else. Well, Andrea, you and your fellow strikers also want to bring attention to what climate change can mean for people who have some form of disability. So tell us, like, what do melting glaciers or rising temperatures, how do they matter more if, if you say, are using a wheelchair to get around? Yeah, I mean, um, if we think about it, a melting glacier isn't necessarily going to affect, like, us right now with the wheelchair. I mean, like, it it's not going to melt tomorrow. Um, but it's happening over time. And so as the glaciers are melting and as the temperatures are rising, um, these vulnerable communities, including the disabled community, is on the front line of this. So as we're seeing these disasters happen um, on larger scales, um, just such as what we've seen in the Bahamas and with Hurricane Dorian and things like that, um, as we're seeing that happen, we have to think about, well, what about those who are not able to, like, get get themselves out of the situation? Like me, Zena, we can walk away from this, right? right? Um, but what happens to those who can't? Um, so that is really important that we don't forget that and we don't overlook that and um, that we have plans in place to address that. Kim, in the 15 years you've been teaching, the perception of climate change has changed dramatically. So has the standard in journalism. We used to have to or aim to balance climate change evidence with the argument of climate change deniers and you know even those who said that human beings have nothing to do with it. Now, now we have overwhelming evidence on these points. So it would defy fact-based reporting to, to, to say otherwise. So what is the role of young people like Andrea and Zena in changing the way we think and speak about these kind of issues? Well, it's, I think it's nothing short of a revolution, what is going on right now. Nothing that anybody would have ever predicted. Um, it, it's injecting hope into those of us who have been on the front lines of this issue, as you say, for decades. And in, in particular, I think that the, the youth movement is something that can really um, bring voice to the vast majority of Americans who are concerned about human-caused climate change. And so they are really able to channel uh, an opportunity for everyone to engage in, in demanding climate action, which is really, again, what the majority of Americans support. And so this is um, bringing voices from uh, a few voices into voices of thousands. And uh, again, it's a great thing to be in the studio with them. Kim Cobb with us from uh, Georgia Tech. She's a climate scientist. Also, Zina Abdul-Karim and Andrea Manning talking about today's youth climate strike. First, research tells us that public radio listeners like you have a strong interest in environmental issues. And we know that this is probably a conversation that's probably important to you. We'd like you to put a value on that during our fall fund drive. Your support is really what allows us to bring you this show and everything you hear on GPB. So we're asking you to do your part today. Call 800-222-4788 or go to gpb.org and make your play a I'm Virginia Prescott. Pat Marcus and Tom Barkley are here to tell you more. 
I'm Virginia Prescott, back with On Second Thought on GPB. Georgia students are joining young people around the world today for the youth climate strike, walking out of class to persuade world leaders to address climate change. That is ahead of the U.N. Climate Summit coming up on Monday. Two local organizers are college students here with me, Zina Abdul-Karim and Andrea Manning. Also with us, Georgia Tech climate, climate scientist Kim Cobb. Now, Andrea, before the break, we talked about the stated reasons that youth around the world are participating in the climate change strike today. You also have a list of five demands. What's on that list? Yeah, so we're demanding um, a Green New Deal. Um, We are demanding respect of indigenous land and um, environmental justice for frontline communities, as well as protection and restoration of biodiversity and implementation of sustainable agriculture. So I'd love to unpack that a little bit. And Kim, maybe the, turn to you. Let's start with the Green New Deal. This is the plan from a group of congressional Democrats to address climate change. Calls for the U.S. to transition to 100 percent renewable energy sources in a decade. How feasible is that? Well, certainly it would be a very bold move. And uh, one of the things I think that's so great and important about the Green New Deal is showing a path um, that is something to talk about and think about how it could get implemented. Um, obviously, things like putting a price on carbon is an important component of, uh, of any kind of federal climate legislation and accelerating that transition. But the main point that the Green Deal is making is that uh, it is possible to enact policies that's going to accelerate our transition away from fossil fuels and that it's high time that we get some ideas out there. And so the Green New Deal is one of the boldest ones, but there are many other proposals hanging around in Congress right now that could get us on the path. Well, there's a great deal of resistance to the Green New Deal already. What are some of the bold uh, proposals that you're talking about? So there is another pending proposal in Congress right now at the House level that would uh, put a carbon fee in dividend that would basically um, incentivize people to make lower carbon choices, companies to make lower carbon choices, and reap economic benefits. Because right now we don't have uh, the price of climate change embedded in our market in a way that people can um, reflect the value of low-carbon lifestyles and low-carbon business practices, low-carbon transportation systems. And so that is really the way to accelerate this transition. And that's part of what uh, we're talking about today when we demand climate action. Although a number of economists would say we're paying for it anyway. <laughs> that's right. That's the bottom line. Well, protection and restoration of biodiversity, that's a demand on the students list that seems close to your heart. You say people don't under the, the, the people should not underestimate the power of planting trees and protecting the ones that already exist. Why? I mean, obviously, we are already part of this ecosystem. And in order to build resilience of human systems, we need an intact ecosystem around us as well. So nature is actually a a strong defense against climate change in many, many different ways. For coastal communities, for urban communities, green spaces play an important role in mitigating the most damaging effects. Um, At the same time, by thinking about green-based solutions and nature-based solutions, we can enhance carbon sinks and help them pull. CO2 out of the sky at the same time. So they're actually a win-win scenario when we bolster the green spaces and natural systems around us. Nazina, you're planning to take these demands all the way to the UN itself. You will be attending the UN Youth Climate Summit in New York tomorrow, which is Saturday. Correct. What do you what do you and your fellow participants hope to accomplish there? Um, well, we hope to accomplish sending the message to our world leaders that they need to take action against this crisis and to demand their responses in this matter. Um, Without it, the lives of future generations are at risk. We are inevitably going to 
you know, fail. Um, so we just need we need their protection. So what is it, you know, you and Andrea, Andrea, I'll put this question to you. You were both remarkably informed. You were young <laughs> activists in high school. What is it that pushed you to become climate activists so young? I mean, part of the power of this, of course, is that future generations are going to be the people living with the effects of climate change. What is it that got you out of your, you know, teenage groove, may I ask, <laughs> and, and got you on the streets? Um, yeah, I guess it for me, it just came down to... Um, recognizing the full impact of this. Um, so before I really got involved, my understanding of climate issues was that it, we needed to protect the polar bears and <laughs> um, stop the glaciers from melting. And personally, like I did like small things to um, do my part, but that wasn't enough for me to really get involved and really start organizing. But when I started hearing about how like black and brown people are at the front line of this, when I started like kind of seeing the, the different intersections of this issue um, into everyday life, that's when I was like, okay, so the work I'm doing in these other areas, it won't matter if in 11 years we're dead. So I need to get on this today. Um, and so that's why I got involved, um, particularly with Zero Hour. That's where I joined um, and, you know, started organizing in that. When, if you're talking about making changes on a big international level, where do we begin here in Georgia? Are there things that you've got in mind? Um, I think in Georgia... We just need to start setting the tone for what needs to happen elsewhere. We can't um, expect for like we can't say, oh, I want, you know, a Green New Deal. I want this, that and a third. Um, and nobody's doing it. And nobody knows, like, what does this look like? What does this look like in Atlanta so right. that we can replicate that in Charlotte and we can replicate that in New York? And um, so we need to do that here today. Right. Kim, you want to pick up on that? Yeah, I just wanted to say that I think we can be an amazing test bed for climate solutions. And so that includes both climate resilience, something that our mayor, Keith Lance Bottoms, is very uh, adamant about in building resilience around urban climate impacts um, through things like affordable housing access, um, but also on the coast. We need to think about what climate resilience means on the coastline and start thinking about conversations and decisions there. But really, the bottom line is we have opportunities to accelerate climate solutions here in Georgia that can scale to, to uh, the rest of the nation. And so thinking about transitioning to a low-carbon economy, for example, we could be the early adopters. We could mm -hmm. reap all those benefits. So again, these, this idea of Georgia as a testbed, I think, is extremely compelling and should be a call for all Georgians to get involved. You with your four kids, uh, hoping that they will also become aware of what's going on with the climate. I want to thank you so much, Kim Cobb, for joining us. Thanks so much for having Kim me. Kim is a climate scientist at Georgia Tech. Also, Zina Abdul-Karim and UGA student, GSU student, right? I right. should identify this very clearly. <laughs> Zina Abdul-Karim, UGA student, Andrea Manning, co-executive directors of a group called Zero Hour Georgia. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank, thank you, you so for much. having us. Thank All you. right. So, by the way, Kim's school will hold a global climate action symposium next Friday, also timed around the UN Summit next week. And Zina will be appearing. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for listening to On Second Thought during our fall fun drive. We're just going to take a couple of moments to remind you that it is your support that keeps this program and others going strong and serving all of the community. It's our fall fun drive, that time of year when we ask you to do your part. Here's Pat Marcus and Tom Barkley to tell you how. 
We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. GPB is celebrating music all of this month. Television producers Carrie Harrison and Amy Cooper are getting in on the festivities with profiles of Georgia musicians. They visited a production studio on Atlanta's Beltline called The Tube and spoke with Kevin Jackson. He's lead singer and songwriter of Jackson County Line. Music's always been a part of my family growing up and um, just being in the church and being around music and uh, always having instruments. I started playing because um, I feel like everybody needs a way to express themselves. more of a the traditionalist type of country music. That's kind of what I grew up listening to. Randy Travis, I was a big fan. Um, I remember hearing Forever and Ever Amen the first time. And I talk about some of those songs that kind of make you feel something. And all night ride was full of nothing The midnight rail was still muddy on that rail Came to my primary instrument is um, acoustic guitar. I also play a little bit of dobro, which is typically an instrument you hear more in, you know, folky, bluegrass kind of music. Recently started playing banjo, which is a totally um, different animal of an instrument. I, I'm crazy for even considering it. Stop by my mama's house. I would consider what Jackson County Line does as Americano. My hopes are that I can say something that makes a difference, to be able to spread a message. Yeah. That's Kevin Jackson of Jackson County Line. You can check out a video for the postcard and others like it at gpb.org slash country and find much more content from our music-long celebration of music under the hashtag GPBLovesMusic. And now we'll shift the mood. The Atlanta Symphony Orchestra kicks off its 75th season tonight, and violin phenom Joshua Bell is stopping by to help. It will be the second to last season for music director Robert Spano on the podium. Sarah Zaslaw hosts Nightcap and the ASO on GPB. She spoke with Spano about the new season when the program was first announced. This is our 75th anniversary season, and we wanted to celebrate who we are, in a sense, who we've been and who we want to be. We celebrated Shaw's 100th birthday a couple of years ago. Choral director Robert Shaw. Whose shadow still looms large at the Woodruff Arts Center and in Atlanta. He's, he was a giant. And we want to honor his legacy again in this 75th anniversary season. And that means featuring the chorus, which is the living legacy that he left us. We'll be doing Mahler's Eighth Symphony. And we'll be doing the Beethoven Misa Solemnis, which we'll also take to Carnegie Hall. 
My predecessor, Yoel Levy, will be returning to conduct a program that, that I believe is very close to one he conducted early in his tenure here, and Itzhak Perlman is the soloist. I have to admit there are a couple things that we're doing that are especially meaningful to me. One is we're exploring Wagner's Tristan and Isolde. doing the entire opera in one evening. How long is the entire opera? Oh, five, six hours. So we're doing uh, one act a night. The first night we have Bach and then act one. The second act we pair with Schoenberg and the third act is paired with Purcell's Dido and Aeneas. The interesting thing about Wagner, I think, is that we tend to think of him as a trailblazer and a prophet and he influenced all the music that came after him. But he was equally an encyclopedist of everything that came before him. And so there's this fascination with what a pivot he is in the history of music. And Tristan is certainly one of those works that kind of changed the world. We'll have panels and talks and chamber music and surrounding activity. So it's kind of a festival attitude around this exploration of Tristan and Isolde. So that's thrilling to me. Any new or recent music? Well, given that it's our 75th anniversary, we're also paying quite a bit of attention to what we've been calling the Atlanta School. And certainly one of the most exhilarating things in my time here has been watching this beautiful culture around living American composers grow and thrive. So we kick off the season with Jennifer Higdon's Concerto for Orchestra. We also have in the season a new symphony from Richard Pryor, who's Atlanta native now. And there are other nods to the Atlanta School because that's such a rich part of our couple decades of history now. We'll be back with ASO Music Director Robert Spano speaking with GBB Classical Music host Sarah Zasla. The orchestra kicks off its 75th season tonight. We'll hear about more when On Second Thought continues. And On Second Thought continues, and everything we do here on GPB, because of your help. Whether we're celebrating music or bringing you the latest news, everything that you hear on GPB really does start with your support. If you rely on and listen to GPB, let us rely on your help to pay for it during our fall fundraiser. The amount you give, that's up to you. What counts is that you do your part now. Here's how. We're back with On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Let's continue our interview with GBB's Sarah Zaslaw and Atlanta Symphony Orchestra music director Robert Spano. The orchestra kicks off its 75th season tonight. As you approach the end of your tenure as music director, are there certain boxes that you want to check off, or have you been thinking legacy? I actually know my programs for my last season, too. In a way, you could say oh, I have to do this, or I have to do that, or we never did that, and I always wanted to do that, or we have to come back to that thing that we loved. The Tristan is certainly something I had wanted to do here for a long time, and now that's coming to fruition. But there's other things that are a glance back, like doing the Higdon Concerto for Orchestra. That's one of the first pieces you recorded with the Atlanta Symphony, right? Yes. So there's a bit of both. Looking back, looking forward. Any other highlight that we didn't touch on yet? Well, 
I'm really happy to bring to Atlanta a young Malaysian pianist that I met thanks to the Aspen Music Festival, who's just unbelievably impressive. Every once in a while, you run across a talent that just is so immense that it's it's so exciting to witness it, to hear him play. He's also a composer, but he's coming to play Bartok's second piano concerto with us, and I'm I'm thrilled to introduce him to Atlanta. What is this Malaysian pianist's name? Tengku Irfan. We'll be looking for that. He's phenomenal. So many considerations go into planning a full season of the Atlanta Symphony with, with all its series. It's not just the classical series that you lead, but there are educational concerts and there are pops-type things with movies or for holidays. You're balancing all sorts of artistic and extra-artistic factors in making these plans. Your fellow institutions at the Woodruff Art Center, the, the High Museum of Art and the Alliance Theater, have been working very creatively to connect with new audiences. And I'm curious what form that effort takes with the Atlanta Symphony. How do you approach that mission to expand the classical base and serve all of our city's diverse communities? How does that play out in programming decisions? Programmatically, we seek to do great music. And I think that that has value and appeal across demographics. And I think that's one of the great things about what we do. Because you can say that, well, you know, Western classical music is dead white European males, so why would anyone care? But I just don't find that to be true because people still care about Beethoven. And they're not necessarily European white males who do. So I think one of the great things about doing what we do is that it really is for everyone. And I think the most important thing we can do is to make sure everyone feels welcome and to get the message out. Because so often I run into people who are aware that there is an Atlanta Symphony Orchestra and that I'm the music director. They recognize me. And I ask, have you come to a concert? And if people say no, I always try and make sure they get a ticket for me. So we really need to make sure that we stop them from not coming. <laughs> and I think that's about invitation and knowing that we don't have an audience. We have many audiences. And just as you were pointing out with our programmatic diversity with movies and pops concerts and classical series and youth concerts and so on, different things in that menu might appeal to different people. But even within any of those programmatic pigeonholes, all kinds of different people are making up our audience. And I tend to think of our audience in the plural. It's audiences. So with all this activity and energy, do you feel like the state of classical music is, is pretty healthy in Atlanta? Oh, incredibly, and in the country. And I often hear, and in the world for that matter, I often hear people fret or wring their hands. And, and often the kinds of financial challenges the ASO has faced have been life-threatening for us. Or what is the future of the American orchestra? And there can be a lot of gloom and doom around the subject. But in fact... I have tremendous confidence that this art will find its way in our world because there are more people interested in classical music right now than ever. We witness that with online behavior, who's taking lessons, who's accessing music, who's listening to music, who's writing about music. The whole issue about people going to concerts is not happening in a vacuum. In fact, if you compare the attrition and people going to theater, dance, movies. Classical music has suffered less attrition than a lot of those other events. 
we're in the middle of a big social change about how we use our free time, what we do, how we entertain ourselves. It's all going to work out. I saw recently in an interview from Arts ATL that the Woodruff Arts Center's CEO, Doug Shipman, is kind of bullish on the prospect of maybe getting a new symphony hall for the orchestra sometime soon. Where we are is in exploring what's most viable and effective and exciting, a renovation of our existing hall or a new hall. I'm very hopeful that before I leave, we will have an actionable plan and that would just be tremendous. Even though I'll be exiting, I still am thrilled with the thought that we will find the best solution for the way forward. It's time, and it'll be so exciting and so great for the orchestra, for the city. It'll be a fantastic step into the future. Robert Smano, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure. That is Atlanta Symphony Orchestra Music Director Robert Spano speaking with GPB's Sarah Zaslaw. It is the symphony's 75th season opening tonight. Joshua Bell will be on stage with the symphony. And it is Spano's second to the last holding the baton. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Nicewanger is our engineer. Our interns are Allison Kraussman, Jessica Lowell, and Alexis Thomason. Don Smith is our Dean of Grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. I'm Virginia Prescott, reminding you that you are a fundamental part of our production team. On Second Thought, and everything you hear on GPB is only possible through your financial support. So during our fall fund drive, we're asking you to do your part. Here's how.